Michigan's Upper Peninsula is my home and Escanaba is my hometown. I'm Craig Warple. Hometown Escanaba connects with the people, activities, and newsmakers of Escanaba and the UP. Join us for more interviews at hometownescanaba.com. Now let's find out what's going on. We're joined by Dr. Bill Hook, Director of Medical Services, and Dave Lord, President and CEO of OSF Healthcare, St. Francis Hospital, and Medical Group. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Craig. Good morning. We have heard about what's going on with the hospitals around the Upper Peninsula, and you are caught up in that as well. Tell us the situation at OSF right now because of COVID-19. Yeah, so right now um, we're just experiencing a very high level of activity for and demand for inpatient hospitalizations. Um, it's not all COVID. I want to make sure that everybody's aware that COVID is definitely contributing to the increased demand. Um, but across the board, across our region, um, hospitalizations are really at an all-time high from all of my experiences and times that I've been working in a leadership role in healthcare. So, um, and I think we can attribute some of this, I know, uh, to the pandemic for sure. Um, as people are now seeking healthcare where they've otherwise sort of put things off and um, have been reluctant to come to a health facility for certain procedures and services, um, it's now resulting in when people are arriving, they're they're actually in a worse off position or much sicker. And so it's, again, regionally very difficult um, for all healthcare facilities and hospitals uh, just do a very high increased demand, and a lot of that are bedded in patients. Yeah, not, not just due to COVID. Is, when you look at last year's surge, and 75% of our admissions were due to COVID, and now it's a much smaller percentage. However, that has just taken away whatever wiggle room we have. And so, one, they're coming in more sick, perhaps because they had not had sufficient uh, interval care uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, and then uh, whatever beds we uh, we had are just taken away by COVID. And so now people just are – it's a backlog. It's, it's analogous to that ship backlog on the West Coast, but, you know, this is critically mm-hmm. old sure. patients that need to get someplace, and it's very disheartening. Yeah, especially when you look at it that it's something that you could have been working on all the time if you had the capability of doing it. So it's got to be worse for the people if they've waited this long to be in a worse shape, right? Perhaps. Uh, and, and then there's also, we, we see some, uh, on a personal level, some regret for not getting the vaccine. Some people get very ill or uh, some of the most uh, heartbreaking scenarios are people on their deathbed having conversations with the family members regretting mm-hmm. not getting the vaccine. I'm talking about the other procedures, though, that are non-COVID related. Sure, sure. So things like colonoscopies, uh, maybe even a, something as simple as a mammogram uh, that would subsequently get you to a biopsy and get those conditions treated more quickly perhaps in cardiovascular health, just to get regular follow-up if people have not been following up with primary care or specialty care for that matter um, because out of fear, and now it's resulting in them being very sick when they do present. You were saying the volume at the hospital has caused you to go beyond that tipping point, and you've had to make uh, certain uh, adjustments to be able to handle that. What's the situation with that? Okay, so this week uh, we executed a part of our emergency plan to convert our ambulatory care unit. That is the area where people get 
colonoscopies or perhaps transfusions or an infusion, uh, and we've turned those into inpatient beds. So that's a plan that we've had all along for the past 18 months, but we didn't execute that until just now. So that meant by doing that, we'd have to temporarily stop those elective procedures. And that is now, that's a day-by-day and even an hour-by-hour scenario here. We had a peak of five uh, beds utilized in that particular ward, and that gave some pressure relief for upstairs, and now we've been able to discharge some of those, and we might even be able to get the remainder up and then reopen the ACU actually within the next uh, few hours. But that, so that's an hour-by-hour and a day-by-day discussion. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel, or is this going to be more long-term? Uh, the, I'm an eternal optimist, Craig. There's always that light. We, I tell the, my teammates here that we are going to get to the other side of that. It's, there's no doubt of that. But where's the peak, you ask? And that's why we have the state epidemiologist predicting that the, the peak is still three weeks away. Of course, I pray that he's dreadfully wrong. The problem is that he's they've got a pretty good track record. So we may be about where we are for another three weeks before we start seeing a downward trend. Uh, but if we can kind of keep that curve flat, if we can keep that peak, maybe we're already at that peak, but it may just persist as a plateau. That is actually temporarily sustainable. So you're making plans for at least three weeks here to keep doing this? Yeah, in essence, to kind of uh, flex that way. If we have a, we'll call them sub-peaks or a surge, then yes, we open up the ACU, cancel the next day's uh, electives, uh, take care of the patients that we have to take care of, see if we get through that, see if we get dispositions, open up some more rooms, uh, and then restart and get those electives. Even when we suspend, an elective procedure, there's still those that will have um, discretion and uh, prudence that some of those will still have to go. So we'll call those uh, the essential ones. You know, if there's a biopsy that just has to happen or maybe uh, maybe a, a hysterectomy, for example, and always the emergency uh, type of, of surgical scenarios, we'll, we'll take care of those. Those will not stop. What happens to the others? So, uh, so by others, you mean maybe a routine screening colonoscopy. So if there was, if someone was one of the unfortunate souls that was scheduled for yesterday and they had the cancellation, we just have to reschedule for down the road. And a lot of those, because of what's already booked, a rescheduling may still be three or four weeks out. Um, I guess to frame that as positive, that should hopefully be on the other side of the peak. Sure. But uh, there would be delay. We just, we really don't want significant delays. We saw that before when absolutely everything was paused, and then by the time things opened up, just the, the screenings that did what they're supposed to do, you know, they're supposed to find those numbers of cancers and get treatment early. So once we started doing those, we found, we found uh, some cases that were farther along than we wanted them to be. You've heard nationally, of course, that there's a shortage of workers. Is that affecting OSF as well, and how is that impacting what you're doing here this week? Yeah, everybody across the entire industry, like you said, is impacted by an overall workforce shortage. And so, yes, that does impact us here uh, locally, especially even regionally, you know, when we do have an ICU admission and there are just not staffed beds available. They may physically have beds, but they just don't have the staff or providers or teams available for that. And so that 
impacts us as a rural hospital who needs to get those patients up for, say, a cardiac intervention or um, stroke care from a, you know, specialist. So um, it, it definitely is impacting um, everybody across the board, and, and that, that includes us here locally as well. Yeah, I won't, I won't be shy to say that, yes, yeah, so my, my teammates and all the other caregivers, that, quite frankly, that they're exhausted, and that can be from a mental, physical, emotional standpoint. Uh, those that remain are just working that much harder, and yes, it has resulted in people uh, leaving healthcare as a profession, um, and that just means those left behind, well, we got to lead on each other, and that's exactly what we're doing. So trying to give that encouragement, and uh, as just mentioned a few minutes ago, the light at the end of the tunnel. One thing to add, too, is that we're really just, you know, trying to balance the work across the full spectrum. And so one thing that I think is important is, you know, versus just coming to the emergency department, um, you know, if you want immediate access to care, if there's ways to contact your primary care offices and providers, um, they may be able to help you versus actually coming to an already full emergency department, having a very long wait, getting very frustrated, and not being able to seek care um, because our care teams are just tied up with some very, some very critically ill patients. And so we're, we're trying to get word out and trying to balance all of that. That's why we put in the surge beds and the other units is not to put everything and keep patients waiting for long periods of time and tying up beds in the emergency department or other parts of the, the system. The other component to this also is our um, skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes as well. They're experiencing significant workforce challenges. And so being able to get patients out of a hospital bed into a nursing home for placement is a challenge. And part of the reason, again, why we opened up that little bit, you know, that surge here as well to help people in those transitions. Dr. Hook, you mentioned that you are the optimist. Now that you've hit that tipping point, just curious if we get to that other point, what's the next step that you need to prepare for just in case? Well, we actually still have quite a bit of room in that ACU. So that's a, as far as our capacity goes. Uh, we've even had some uh, plans for a field hospital if we really needed to uh, to open something up. That, that really hasn't come to fruition, nor does it look like we have to do that. That was the one at the fairgrounds so, at the beginning of the pandemic? Uh, we had a, a couple options. We actually looked at the physical therapy building. Okay, that's uh, on the on the campus mm-hmm. with with open bays there, and uh, our our local team and, and the the regional uh, emergency uh, response teams uh, were, were involved with the planning for that. ISD, for example, is building ISD poles. Obviously, our COVID numbers are climbing as well as those who are um, needing extra care. Are most of those COVID numbers coming from you now? Are you doing all the testing, or is that happening somewhere else in the county? And what do you think of those numbers? They're, they're happening uh, all over. We have the majority, by far, but the, there's, there's other uh, uh, facilities, and uh, some are doing self-tests. I think the mill is doing some of their own testing, several of the businesses, uh, some of the schools, they might have their antigen testing. Uh, the confirmatory with either a molecular or a PCR we do right here. Once we get that result, uh, one can be uh, triaged, if you will, for a potential monoclonal antibody. How are you able to handle doing that with all of the other things that are happening at the hospital? Well, just like within the hospitals, we have a supply and demand issue there, too, quite frankly. Uh, Here we can treat, uh, we're pretty much maximum of about eight 
per day, and that's just about where we are with the referrals, is about eight uh, per day, eight, actually a little bit more. And so uh, we, we look at the, the highest risk factors. Uh, age is, is the most significant one. Uh, so someone that's uh, young in their 40s that might have a single uh, risk factor uh, we have a quite frankly a lower priority, and that's because we want to make sure that the treatment uh, has significant benefit. And so someone that's going to ride through the course uh, and not be hospitalized and, and getting that treatment would not necessarily be a huge benefit. It might speed up a recovery. Mm-hmm. But when you look at who might end up in the hospital or and, and have a uh, significant risk of death, well, those are the folks that we want to treat with the highest priority. And sure. so if we have eight of those high priorities, then number nine, number 10, a lower priority, are not going to get treated, maybe not necessarily that day, but we'll track them along and maybe get them in. And fortunately, what we've seen is the lower priorities, as we, as we follow along with them, they turn the corner without ever having the treatment. And so that's our allocation resources. I'll show that there's a, a couple options. There's a, the Regeneron product, uh, and that can be given by subcutaneous injection or by IV. IV is actually preferred, but subcutaneous is acceptable. And when you look at the demand, we can give the eight eight folks treated uh, with the subcutaneous and, because the IV takes up so much more staff. And then there's also the, the what's called BAM-ET, the BAM-Lenivimab and Edisivimab. That combination is IV infusion only. And the state's given us some allocation of that all along, so we've had stockpiles of that which we haven't dipped into because we've been using the Regeneron, but now when Regeneron runs low, then we uh, revert back to using the amlanivimab and adesivimab. And that's exactly what we've done the uh, last, last couple of days. Okay. The testing has been done at that extra building in the back there as well as at the uh, walk-in clinic. Are you able to keep up with the demand in those areas as far as the we testing are, is concerned? Got, yeah, with a cat, barely. So when you look at the, the walk-in numbers, so their volume of patients on any given day, really the lowest we've seen in the last couple of days was one day where we had 37, and then there's other days that uh, we've seen over 70 and another one over 80. And likewise, at the testing facility, anywhere from the 30s to upwards of the 60s and 70s, so the combined on any given day really approaches about 120 on average is who are assessing on a daily basis right now, and then pulling eight of those to treat. How about vaccinations? Are those being done through the hospital still, or are they also being done somewhere else? Because your concern There's is that all, people be yeah, vaccinated. Uh, they are available at the, at the health department, also just right here uh, through the PCP office at this point. In fact, uh, speaking of which, uh, you know, it's now flu vaccine season, and it's no problem at all if you qualify for a booster then you could get a, a flu shot and a booster all at once. Okay. Double duty then, right? <laughs> you yeah, had the flu clinic. Had, uh, someone recently turned 65 and therefore eligible for the pneumovax, uh, the pneumococcal vaccine. So I've had uh, a patient get all three, mm-hmm. two in one arm and one in the other. You had the flu clinic last weekend. How did that go? That went very well. What do we have, Joanne? About 132? 140. 140, 140. People came through and got their flu vaccines. Okay. And that was very successful, and we uh, increased the volume uh, last year by a minus percentage. It's pretty warm out for October. A lot of times these uh, sicknesses 
are accelerated when we go more indoors and the temperatures get a little colder. So are you anticipating something still happening as the temperatures start to drop? You have to say yes. It's, it's a historical patterns hold true. So, and, then, and we're seeing that too, Craig. So we've had uh, on average one kiddo at any given time in the hospital with respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually had uh, three in earlier this week. Influenza is not going away. I don't think we've had a hospitalized lately. We've had some adults hospitalized with RSV as well, uh, but there's been a few cases of influenza. Okay. What do you want the community to know at this point? Uh, a couple things. One, I, I ask for indulgence. Uh, the, the staff is, is strained. The volumes are high. The wait, the wait times are long. Uh, we can't deny that they, they are what they are. So we ask for uh, patience and, and understanding. Uh, I would continue to encourage the vaccine. Uh, I'd like to remove any and all politically charged emotion with it. You know, I get that. I'm a huge fan of liberty myself. When I look at the volumes, in fact, I'm looking at one pictogram right now. So out of 126 hospitalized patients that are hospitalized for COVID, 96 are unvaccinated and 30 are fully vaccinated. This is across the OSF ministry. Within the ICU, it's the most intensive uh, care. We have 25 COVID patients, 24 are unvaccinated, and one's fully vaccinated. So you, you see it doesn't stop completely, but gosh, it's, it's compelling on how one with lower risk. And on the ventilators, again, across the OSF hospitals, we have 15 patients on ventilators and one is fully vaccinated. So 14 unvaccinated. So if you want to mitigate your risk against COVID or mitigate the risk that you might bring to your loved ones that might be at higher risk, your loved ones that have diabetes, your loved ones that are over 80, then I'll encourage the vaccine. And again, we had that heartbreaking story uh, that, that went public and national about a woman on her deathbed pleading to her family members to get the vaccine that she wished that she had gotten it, and quite a few got that. And that's actually happened a, a couple times. What do you think about about 25% of the people being hospitalized that had the vaccine and are still getting COVID? I thought we, if uh, we got I, the vaccine that we were going to be okay. You know, that, and that was an initial impression early on. I wonder, this is just my more personal, if we, we see the, the waning of a vaccine, just like we have to get annual flu shots. Uh, so, therefore, we have the COVID booster that has come along. But when you look at who is hospitalized and what their courses are, that is another substantial differential there that uh, the people that have been in generally, a uh, vast majority are in for a short term, like two days, uh, get the oxygen to get through it and, and turn around. And again, the unvaccinated again and again have longer courses. They're sicker. They're filling up the ICUs, you know, by a ratio of 24 to 1, uh, filling up the the uh, ventilators, 14 out of 15. It, it's a substantial difference on outcomes. Dave, we'll end with you. What do you want the community to know? Uh, again, just, you know, have patience with the healthcare system. Um, you know, our, our workers, our teams are doing absolute very best they can. They're doing some absolutely amazing work. Um, but again, they're very tired. Um, many are um, overwhelmed and working very long shifts and hours, but we're always going to be here for our community. We're going to continue to um, take the best, very best care that we can for our friends and neighbors and family members. So, but again, everybody can help and play a role 
and um, prevention, the vaccine, masking, safe standards, you know, related to hand hygiene and distancing and all those things, all of the, the vigilant work that everybody can do the community is going to have an impact at the end of the day. So again, just ask for patience and I just uh, very much appreciation for all of our healthcare teams and workers, EMS, nursing homes, everybody across the community. Others have been reaching out to us to ask in ways that they can help and um, that has been true for a year and a half and it continues today. So very proud to be a part of the community in doing this, but again, just ask for everybody's help and participation as we continue through this challenge. Dave Lord is President and CEO, and Dr. Bill Hook is Director of Medical Services of OSF Healthcare St. Francis Hospital and Medical Group. I certainly appreciate your extra time with us today. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for letting us share our message. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our sponsor, SwedishPimple.com. Check out all of the fishing lures made right here in the Upper Peninsula at SwedishPimple.com. You can continue to follow us at hometownescanaba.com. We connect with the people, activities, and newsmakers from Escanaba and Michigan's Upper Peninsula.